Thank you for joining us here at First Baptist Church of San Antonio, whether online or on broadcast, in your homes or wherever you may be. We want you to know that you are more than welcome to be a part of the life of this church, and we want you to know that we want you to meet Jesus today. In order for this to happen regularly, we need your support, we need your prayers, and we need your financial gifts. Please continue to give and be a part of what we do today. Let's stand together and read this passage from Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 20, all together. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you were to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now please forgive the sins of the servants of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. <clears throat> the challenge of living together in families. Nothing is more brutally honest about that reality than the Bible. You might occasionally hear a sentimentalized take on how the Bible presents families, but there's little to be sentimental about, really. The Bible teaches faithfulness between spouses and tenderness and parenting and lifelong honor for parents. But the actual families it shows us fall far, far from those directives. We get strife, secret keeping, adultery, emotional distance, cruelty, and that's not all. I mean, just on and on. Even Jesus' own family wasn't sweetness and light. Remember that idyllic nativity scene? Yeah, that was not the way things turned out later on. Mark's gospel gives us a window into a family racked by turmoil over what in the world Jesus was doing. As we read earlier, they thought he had taken leave of his senses, so they attempted to stage an intervention and forcibly remove him from public life. Have you thought about this? Our Lord's own family of origin as a hot mess. Sometimes you hear about how Jesus' own brothers didn't believe him, but this was way beyond just a matter of, of arguing about theological claims. This was some serious upheaval, a distressing breakdown in family life. And Jesus experienced that distress to the core of his being. We know this because as the intervention incident was unfolding, Jesus turned to those gathered around him and expressed his longing for 
family-like intimacy with his followers. He said to them, all who follow God can be my brothers and sisters, and I need that. He wasn't using his own family disruption to make a clever teaching point. He was speaking right to the God-ordained longing present in every person, including within himself, for wholehearted belonging and profound closeness to family. God created you with that longing present in you. Part of the inescapable makeup of a human being is the longing for deep-seated connection. When that longing isn't fulfilled, it hurts. That pain rises in you and begins to exert pressure on your life. You don't like pain, of course, so you attempt to dial it down. Some will make efforts to convince themselves that they're being selfish by wanting closeness in a family that just never did closeness. Or some will try to convince themselves that they didn't need to hear I love you from parents or caregivers because those folks showed love by providing food and shelter. Others will take on a certain toughness that looks down on such longing as weakness, speaking in disparaging terms such as it's childish and petty to be sad just because your mommy didn't hug you enough. Sometimes a person might seek power over others in order to shield herself from pain. Other times a person might lash out at others in destructive ways or use substances to numb the emotions or hold himself at a distance from his children because intimacy frightens him. You get enough of society downplaying and disowning the longing for connection with others and soon enough that internal pain metamorphoses into desperation for security and finally into anger that seeks to destroy other people, kind of like the world we've got today. But long before it gets that far, unfulfilled longing for family connection will leave persons emotionally stranded, even in a house full of people. I remember as I was growing up, whenever our family would get cross with each other, parent to parent or parent to child or however it went, it was distressing. I remember a couple of times my father storming out of the room saying, I just need some peace. And I, it didn't seem like peace was any closer as he said that. It just seemed further away. You know what one of the major drivers of distress is? Aloneness. Aloneness. You want to get close to your daughter, but you can't find a way in no matter how hard you try. Or you can't start a conversation with your father without walking on eggshells. You thought that would end when you grew up, but it's worse than ever now. These aren't strangers trying to find a friend. This is family. If it's cold in your house, it's Antarctica in the rest of the world. No wonder people feel like they've lost their way. When you've not been able to find welcome in the presence of the people most important to you, it feels too risky to let your guard down with anybody. And you feel so alone. Maybe that sounds like you. You're on your own. It's too much. And that's gone on for years and years. There are many, many cultural challenges which stand between 
the ancient Middle Eastern world and today's Western sensibilities, sometimes it's hard to understand the Bible because it's hard to understand antiquity. This can't be overstated, but is there anyone here who doesn't think the description of the chaos in Joseph's family sounds like a family you know? Not you, of course, not the families here. I'm talking about those yucky people outside. No, we'll have to, we have to laugh or we'll cry, really. Seriously, all of the passages in the Bible that read like, uh, of all those passages that read like something that you would experience today, this one is near the top of that list. Family tensions are palpable all throughout the story of Jacob's family. Complaining, shaming, guilt manipulation, sibling rivalry, irritation, duplicity, desperation, panic, dashed hopes. It's all there, and it's all familiar. Before we continue, a brief recap of this family story. It's complicated, so if you don't keep up, you're not alone. Jacob and his 12 sons and their families lived in Canaan in a difficult household. Jacob doted on his two youngest offspring, Joseph and Benjamin, who were the sons of his favorite wife. That phrase, favorite wife, alone, contains enough backstory to trace out the origins of misery in this house. That's a whole other thing. Jacob was enough of a presence that he kept a lid on this pressure cooker of a family. All the while, Joseph became the focus of so much of their father's favor that the ten older brothers experienced an increasingly sidelined existence. In the course of time, their anguish grew to a fever pitch, and they decided to punch through their torment by killing Joseph, ridding themselves of the one whom they saw as robbing them of their father's affection. As it turned out, they instead ended up selling Joseph into slavery in Egypt, telling their father he had been killed by a ferocious animal. In a wildly unpredictable sequence of events you'd have to read to believe, Joseph, though he started out as a slave in Egypt, ascended to the heights of power in that nation, second only to Pharaoh, as the mastermind of Egypt's family relief, uh, fam famine relief program. When his brothers traveled to Egypt to buy grain during the famine, they encountered Joseph, whom they did not recognize, though he recognized them. Joseph, after dealing with Months of his own wrenching emotional turmoil stirred up by the arrival of his brothers eventually revealed his identity to them and invited them to bring their families and father Jacob to Egypt to live. They all came to stay. Seventeen years later, Jacob, the patriarch of the whole clan, died. That's where the scripture picks up this morning. Here we are. As we look at this event in the scripture today, keep in mind the deep need that God has placed in each of us, a deep and inescapable longing for closeness with loved ones. Verses 15 through 17 present Joseph's brothers in the grip of stark fear. What if Joseph holds a grudge and pays us back? So they sent word, your father said to forgive us. Please forgive the sins of your servants of the God of your father. Jacob's death cued a sense of danger for the ten older brothers. In their own way, they were saying, we're afraid and we've been afraid for years, but they couldn't bring themselves to say that outright. Such an admission would be out of the question. 
They had never revealed their inmost emotions to anyone in the family, and they weren't going to put themselves in a vulnerable position like that now. They sensed danger now that their father was gone. They considered their moves, and the only move they could conceive of making was to hide behind their father continually. This is the only way they knew to fight for their lives. All their lives, they lived with a father who did not give them the nurture that they needed or a father who could not soothe them when they were troubled, a father who left them to fend for themselves emotionally while he lavished attention on Joseph. That's a scary way to grow up. Even after they had gotten rid of Joseph, the hoped-for affection from their father never came. He only continued to focus on the loss of Joseph, not on the family he still had. They were emotionally abandoned by their father, and at the same time, they relied on him to keep harm at bay. What a terrible bind. Now, as they sensed a giant threat to their lives, no wonder they kept on hiding behind their father. It felt too dangerous to do anything else. But during all these years, something had happened to Joseph in Egypt, unbeknownst to his brothers. Verse 17 tells us that on hearing their message, Joseph wept. Here's what Joseph's tears say. I can never find closeness with my family if we continue to fear each other. That's a tender cry coming right from the center of Joseph's being. This is the one who had been so very insufferable to his brothers in his younger years, the one whom they viewed as the biggest threat to their father's ability to give love to them. Early on in his life, Joseph sensed the emotional barricades of his that his brothers had put up to protect themselves from him. He could not approach them and find love and support from them. This hurt Joseph, and he in turn began to rely on his own barrier to attempt to protect himself from further wounding by that rejection. How could he not? His claim to superiority in his own eyes was his barrier. He couldn't get close to them, so he became a gloating braggart to shore up his aloneness. But again, something had happened to him in his years in exile. The experience in Egypt presented Joseph with an opportunity to reconsider all he ever thought was important, to dig into his own inmost being and discover what truly mattered to him. This was God's call on Joseph's life. It was not a call to the greatness of power, but to the tenderness of love. Joseph ascended to power, but without love, that power would have killed, not saved. He began to sense that old, long-covered-up longing to be near his brothers and his father, to find acceptance and welcome in their presence, and to give the same to them. And as he now receives the message from his brothers, he sees how far, how far apart they really are how they fear him in their pain, and how he has in his own pain made himself unavailable to them. They're just so far apart that it seems their family will just disintegrate. He's completely devastated by his inability to cross that chasm between himself and his brothers so that he might build a life of tenderness and closeness with them. That's where those tears come from. In verses 18 and 19, his brothers prostrate themselves before him and offer themselves as his slaves. This is what it's come to for this family. 
But Joseph says to them, don't be afraid. And this is where it all begins to turn. A lifetime of legacy, a lifetime legacy of pain begins to turn toward a legacy of a family salvaged from destruction. With his don't be afraid response, Joseph says, fear has been the way we've dealt with each other all our lives, but I want to find a way we can live together other than fear. But he doesn't stop there. His next statement is a shocking takedown of all the barriers he had ever constructed. The next statement was the riskiest thing he had ever done. He stood before them with no barricade, no hiding place, no wall, nothing. And he said, am I in the place of God? Here's why that's the most hopeful statement ever uttered between him and his brothers. With that question, Joseph says to them, actually, I'm weak. The father's favorite, the golden boy, the famine whisperer, he risks it all now. He so longs for a real, for an authentic life with his brothers. He's so weary of defensive posturing that he reveals himself fully to them in all his weakness. They could reject him. They certainly could. They could attempt to exploit his weakness. He has no defenses up now. That's the risk. He opens up to them and reveals to them that he had put on a big show of confidence and land on his feet, invincibility, all his life. But it was all just show. It was all because he was trying to avoid further hurt. This is Joseph engaging with them in a new and risky way. Let's continue with verse 20. You intended to harm me, Joseph says. Now, at this point, Joseph reaches way into his chest and just pulls his heart out and holds it there wide open. He goes for broke here. We can read this statement, you intended to harm me. We can read that as a statement of righteous indignation or justified shaming, like you, attended, you attempted to hurt me and I haven't forgotten that, you rotten heaps of toxic masculinity. But that reading, you could, but that reading would undermine everything that's been building thus far. The sense of his statement to them, you intended to harm me, is actually more of a, a tender expression of empathy. You intended to harm me and you've been living with the heaviness of that regret all these years. You've loathed yourselves as detestable in the sight of God and your father and me. Joseph hit it spot on for them. He said exactly what they were feeling. He was in tune with them now. The brothers could feel a connection with him for the first time in their lives. And Joseph went further. He said what they never would have dared believe. He told them that far from being unredeemable failures, God found something of value in their actions. 
God intended it for good, Joseph said, to accomplish what is now being done. Joseph signaled to them clearly that he did not hold them in disdain. In fact, he understood that he represented a threat to the favor and honor they desired from their father and that he had further heightened that threat by his own dismissive behavior toward them, treating them as though they were beneath him. This is how wide open Joseph was holding his heart for them. And he went further still by revealing how far-reaching this whole family story had become. He told them that God was ensuring the saving of many lives. They had thought of themselves as beyond the pale, these brothers. But nothing could be further from the truth. They were all actually participating with God the Savior in rescuing people from death, Joseph said. He now, finally, wanted his brothers and himself to be free from their reliance on scheming and from his reliance on power so that together they could find comfort and joy in each other, seeing each other as partners in family and partners in God's saving work. Joseph's message to his brothers was this, our family's pain could have destroyed both a family and a nation, but God has saved the lives of our family and through our family, the lives of an entire nation. Now there's a whole life ahead for us to come closer to each other. And now consider Jesus' family. Remember that from earlier? Suddenly the account of his family thinking he had lost his mind takes on much more gravity. If he couldn't count on his family's support and nurture, if Jesus couldn't count on that, he was in trouble. Perhaps as the news that his mother and brothers had arrived, it's possible that it's possible that Jesus wept tears too. Just like Joseph when Joseph received the message from his brothers. It's possible that Jesus wept. We, we know he wept. The shortest verse in the Bible. Maybe this was the precursor to that. Who knows? Don't you think for a minute that Jesus could just suck it up and be a man? That has nothing to do with manhood or womanhood or humanity at all. Disowning that longing for connection is a denial of one's humanity. Instead, Jesus embraced his human longing for deep connection. He couldn't just let it go. And if his own family wasn't available for him, he would cultivate those connections with others. You can see him beginning to do just that when he said, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. This is a heavy and emotionally charged statement. In saying this, Jesus acknowledged his own pain that he carried because of a family which viewed him through a lens of fear and anxiety. They weren't bad people. They just didn't know what to do with him. The closeness he longed for them wasn't possible in such an environment. But instead of disowning that pain, he listened to it and he risked reaching out to those around him to establish new bonds of intimacy. 
It's always a risk because that kind of vulnerability leaves a person open to wounds from a friend, which is exactly what happened to Jesus with Judas. But it was a risk worth taking because, of, because the, the nurture of this new family sustained him almost to the very end. This family withdrew from him in his darkest moments of anguish and execution. But he, he came back for them. And he reached out again. He longed for them so much. And he pursued them. And he built a church which eventually included even those in his family of origin who had at first rejected him. And that family, that new family, would take the gospel to the whole world. What a story! It was all possible because Jesus wouldn't let go of his longing for family. Jesus built a new family of mothers, brothers, and sisters that eventually included his original family. All this talk of risk and reaching and empathy might seem too much for you because of the deep pain you experience in your own family. With Joseph's family, it took years. Years. Joseph wasn't some genius family therapist right out of the box at all. It took years with that family for them all to make the inner journey to a nearer life with each other. Joseph and his brothers discovered that God gave them time over long years to move slowly from suspicion to tenderness. And sometimes with great sadness, we must realize that such closeness will just not happen in some families. It just won't. Sometimes there's too much danger or pain or destruction. Like Jesus with his own family. You might find all the doors closed. Jesus found those doors closed and then he found closeness, that closeness that he longed for with the fellowship of his friends. Like Jesus, when closeness with your family will not happen, you too have an opportunity to pursue and find that closeness with people in the church who will respond to you with profound tenderness and emotional welcome. Jesus longs for family with the same intensity you long for it because he gave you that longing and he will provide it for you through his church. That longing for closeness with your mother, your father, your children, your spouse, siblings, extended family, that longing is precious to God. Every time, every time you remember that longing or reflect on it or shed tears because of it, you're treasuring something God treasures. With the help of trusted wise friends, that God places in your life with the help of faithful counselors that are doing the work of helping people make sense of their longings for closeness, with the reassurance that Joseph's story and our Savior's words bring to you, hold on to that longing. 
Don't give up on it. Don't push it away. Accept no substitutes. One day, all who count on Christ will stand together as a beautiful family with no need to hide from each other anymore. Any movement now towards that kind of life with others in this world will give all people hope that the best is yet to come. When families of origin or church families help each other through their pain, it's good for the whole world. Now this is your time. What are you hearing? Whatever says to you, listen to your longing for closeness, open up to someone about that pain that you feel because of that need for closeness. Whatever says that to you, that's the, that's the you that God created. Whatever says to you, come to the Savior and find the one who knows that pain you feel because he's felt it too, that's Christ himself calling you, welcoming you to his side. Start with Christ, get to know him, and when you do, you will find how trustworthy he is, how he matches your lonely step. Count on him to save you from the darkest paths and lead you into light and life forever. He will lead you into joy with him and with a family who will welcome you and accept you for all eternity. Will you stand?